This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch the season premiere of Grey's Anatomy tonight at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Welcome to Oh God, What Now? The politics podcast that's all elves and no Santa. I'm Andrew Harrison. On today's show, all alone with Michelle Moan. Has the elusive Baroness Barra done herself any favours by finally answering questions about her involvement with dodgy COVID PPE? Spring forwards, Labour is now expecting an early election next year. Keir Starmer has ordered all manifesto policies to be ready by February. So do we need to polish our swingometers for a campaign that will effectively start on New Year's Day? And a political junkie's Christmas. How do we get through the news desert of the festive period? Let's say hello to the panel. Ros Taylor is the host of Jam Tomorrow and author of the upcoming book, The Future of Trust, which is out in February. Hi, Ros. Hello, Andrew. So Rishi Sunak has just announced another of his personal pet policies. That's definitely going to go down well with his daughters. He wants to ban all under-16s from social media. Most platforms have their own age restrictions. Anyway, how's, how's he going to make this work? Yeah, he likes banning things, doesn't he? Mm. It's, a, it's a sort of knee-jerk thing for Rishi Sunak. But, I mean, it, they have their age restri- restrictions, but, of course, everyone just ignores them yeah. because there's no easy way of enforcing them. And if there were, it would have been done by now, right? Mm. Because you need to have age verification and you need to have, you know, ID cards or passports or some sort of central database in order to do that. And the thing is that all the adults who currently use these social media things would have to do it, not just the under-18s. Yeah. And that would create a, you know, quite heavy, tedious burden for people, allied with the fact that, as I talked about on the Jam Tomorrow ID Cards podcast, uh-huh. we don't actually have a functioning ID or card or a centralised database yet, for good or ill. So I suspect this is a policy that will initially be very popular among the public, because generally people do like banning things. We know that. Well, old people like banning things, oh, well, yes. Everybody likes banning things. Have you not seen the you know the stats on, like, co- uh, you know, people? some people just want COVID restrictions still. Yeah, they just want to ban nightclubs and yeah, things yeah. forever. Yeah, but I mean also, you know, XL bullies and uh, smoking for over 14s. It's 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 a it's a thing. They just say, yeah, why not ban it? Um, but it's extremely hard to do. I can now picture if age verification comes in for all social media accounts, everybody over 40 won't be able to do it and they will ask their kids. <laughs> so like under 16s will be helping Mm. me to, to verify my, my Facebook, which kind of defeats the object of the whole thing, doesn't it? It's like when I have to go and do my mum's Wi-Fi for her. Yeah, yeah, it's going to be... Uh... It's going to be crazy. I mean, it's not going to happen, of course. But if it if it did, it would be crazy. Hannah Fern is a columnist specialising in social issues. Hello, Hannah. Hello. So you've got kids too. How are you planning to explain to them that they're not allowed TikTok anymore? TikTok is only for the over 40s. <laughs> well, my kids are only three and six, so they don't okay. know what TikTok is yet. And they actually haven't worked out what Minecraft is. So I've got a bit of time <laughs> yet. By the time they come round yes. to this... 
TikTok won't exist, obviously, or some format of it. It won't be attractive in the same way. And my main objection to this policy is simply that it doesn't make any sense for this era. It's, mm. it's for like 15 years ago when it might have been sensible to look at regulation and age limits and so on. Yeah. Um, I think that actually it's against the current trends. Younger people, there's now Gen, um, actually even below Gen uh, Z, whatever the young, the, the ones who are sort of starting secondary school now, there's a, a trend towards pushing back towards burner phones, not having internet connection. Um, so you, mm. the idea that they're obsessing about something that really upsets 45-year-olds yeah. and actually isn't going to really impact on the adult lives of the kids that they're trying to protect is another example of how Sunak's all over the place, I yeah. think. Well, my son is is 11 and I can tell you that he's desperate to get on social media. So I don't think, it, it, it certainly, and I, I'd love it if he was happy with a bird of phone, but the idea of a bird of phone is absolutely anathema to him. He actually refuses to walk to school on his own because if he walked to school on his own, he wouldn't be allowed to take a smartphone because the school rules say he would have to have a bird of phone and that is too much. You know, he's just not interested. So, well, I've got some it, research that I can tell you might change, well, might make you feel more relaxed about all that. Um, a very, really recent study at University College London found that um, social media at age 12 and 13 was not associated with any mental health problems at 14 to 15 years of age. And it's not the result that any of the academics involved in the study were expecting either. So I Um, think that all it's the content, it's the access to pornography and all of that kind of the adult world that is the problem. It's not the method of delivery. So simply saying social media bans doesn't solve the um, plethora of, of unsuitable content that's still easy to access out on the internet, which is the core issue, I think. Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. I would love to, my, my daughter to use less social media. She uses far too much. She admits she is addicted to TikTok. We don't, she doesn't have the TikTok app. She just, you know, accesses yeah. it through YouTube and so on. She ad- admits that she is addicted to it. But somehow we have to get to a way of her being able to regulate how much she uses it. And sometimes that involves us confiscating her phone because she simply can't keep away with it from it. I'd also like to be in a place where we actually knew more about how, you know, the TikTok algorithm works. Why does it keep serving her dodgy far-right content? Because it does. Mm. Why does my son on YouTube see advertisements for stuff that he he should not be seeing in political content? And, you know, because he's on kids' YouTube. There is some very, very dodgy things going on, and we don't talk enough about that. We just talk too much about straightforwardly banning what's what's happening. I just love the fact that the Times headlined it, something along the lines of... Sunak will ban Facebook for under 16. So it's like you might as well ban them from having penny farthings and Werther's originals. Yeah. I mean, I think that research into how we understand how putting our own limits in place and self-regulation, I think a lot of adults need that too, yeah. not least me. Yeah. I, I have a bit of an Instagram addiction that is problematic when you're self-employed. Okay. So I, but, I, you know, I think everybody needs yeah. that. Well, listeners, tell us all about it on social media. <laughs> <laughs> You have to feel sorry for poor Rishi Sunak. He's just got that pesky Rwanda policy under the wire just in time for Christmas. He's all ready to put on his Jar Jar Binks onesie and spend the holidays watching the Star Wars prequels with the kids. And then another Tory skeleton launches itself out of the closet. This time, it's former underwear baroness Michelle Moan and her husband Doug Barrowman, who chose this weekend to break their silence about the £60 million profit they made on faulty PPE during the pandemic and how they only lied to and threatened the press with legal action just to protect their family. That's all right, isn't it, Ros? If you're if you're concealing information from the press, the public and the government to protect your family, then that's OK. 
Yeah, it's unfortunate that she had to say that in a BBC interview. Let's <laughs> let's put it that way. Presumably because not enough people watched uh, the video that she made uh, defending herself. Mm. She felt she had to go further out. She go to the press to get her message out there. But you know, ironies. Yeah, I was t- I was lying then, but I'm telling the truth now. It's always a, gr- a great sound. Moan and Barrowman's interview with Laura Coonsberg was widely awarded five Prince Andrews out of a possible five. Um, what did what did you make of it in terms of uh, car crash telly? Oh, it was just oh, it was. You couldn't keep your eyes off it, really. And they, 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 the lines that she was making, I mean, ultimately, although it is very complicated what they may, what they have done with the money, the profits that they made from the MedPro and uh, from PPE, uh, we don't know exactly where it's ended up. And there are all kinds of uncertainties over what went on and how the whole agreement was approved and all that. Re- ultimately, it's actually quite simple. It's, is it okay to make 60 million, at least, out of the NHS during a pandemic? And what the question of whether the PPE they were flogging was dodgy is almost a sideline to that. It's not okay to, you know, if you made 100,000 out of the NHS during a pandemic, you might have some qualms, but 60 million pounds. It was just extraordinary. Um, you know, she continues to to claim that she hasn't benefited from that 60 million because it's held in trust for her or her children if her husband dies. But, you know, nonetheless, she her husband bought a yacht and bought a private jet he, he in says he 2021. Didn't buy a yacht in, the, in the interview, he said, I did not buy a yacht with these proceeds. But I mean, the, the yacht came from somewhere. The yacht came from somewhere. I mean, maybe it was from the other, pro- it all went into a big bank account and he suddenly felt able to buy a, mm. to buy a yacht. And Baroness Moan was pictured on the yacht enjoying the yacht so arguably she is benefiting but yeah, yeah it's 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 unpleasant so just to divide this there's a there's a, a legal case isn't there there's national um national crime agency are investigating for um potential fraud and potential bribery which is separate from the kind of court of public opinion in which these these this BBC interview and the, and the previous self-produced interview um, took place. What is what's happening with the with the actual legal case? The legal case is brought by the Department of Health and mm. that's about the gowns that they supplied, which the Department of Health say were unusable uh, and un- not, not sterile. Uh, Baroness Moan says that they were usable. So that's the, the fundamental of the legal case. She's also being investigated by the Lords who want to know why she didn't declare PPE MedPro as a registered interest. And she claims that the Cabinet Office told her that she didn't have to, which seems very odd. Seems odd. Yeah. yeah. Hannah, uh, as you pointed out, uh, we only lied to the press and that's not a crime. Isn't much of an excuse because what it translates to is we only lied to everybody. Yeah. So that's okay. Exactly. People seem to have this weird idea that the press is this sort of elite establishment, an organisation that, that you can kind of get away with saying anything to because they're corrupt and awful. Mm-hmm. But the press is merely a channel of information to everybody, to the taxpayer, to the people whose money they were taking through this project. So, yeah, rephrase that very sentence and it sounds very different indeed. They seem to make the calculation that everybody hates the press, therefore lying to them is okay. Exactly. And when you hear that sentence in its own right, I can see that that is a communication strategy. not what (laughs) I'd have gone for and advised them. I can see that's what they're trying. People do hate the press. But you only have to take it one step further through a bit of logical cognition to realise that's yeah. a stupid argument. I just like the use of the, the reverse Father Ted, which is that money was only resting in somebody else's account, therefore I, it's not mine. 
Yeah. Look, everybody in this country understands the difference between liquid cash and an asset. You know, I don't have the money that's sitting in my house right now, mm. but I can sell it anytime and there's the money. Yeah. Um, it's and not the my idea money, that... it's just in my wallet. The money is in my wallet, but it's not mine. I don't understand either the argument that, that you don't benefit from a significant um, asset arrangement, however complex it is that that is, belongs to your husband, because the whole point of marriage in this country is to protect one another's share of each other's assets. So mm. yes, they've got a very complicated fence around it, which no doubt is partly uh, for legal protection and to kind of... And entirely legitimate tax arrangements, I'm, you know, of course. I'm sure, but the idea that she's not a beneficiary is the bit that's laughable yeah. in that. Meanwhile, as these things continue to pop up, uh, Miriam Cates is now under investigation by the Common Standards Committee for unspecified allegations that she caused significant damage to the reputation of the House as a whole or of its members generally. Um, Rishi Sunak's just so unlucky, isn't he? These things just keep happening on his watch. <laughs> it's like whack-a-mole. Yeah, oh, Which another one. Which one's going to pop up next? Oh, God, I yeah. mean, it's really hard to comment on Kate specifically because, as you said, yeah. we don't know the basis of the allegation. But she's under investigation for something that damages the reputation of the whole house. And she's one of eight uh, MP, Tory MPs who are currently under investigation for various things, four of whom are under the same... Uh, clause or bracket uh, under uh, under the kind of regulations of, of membership um, and of those others some of them include things like ignoring lockdown restrictions so mm. it's that kind of uh, um, you know misstep basically we don't know what exactly the reason that Rishi Sunak is unlucky I say with air yes. quotes it's actually just lack of party discipline and oversight isn't it it's a rats in the sack now and um uh, he's got no chance of keeping any kind of control of a party that no longer have any sort of common coherent agenda or strategy or ambition. They're just panicking and, yeah. you know, you're going to end up with within that. Of course, eight is only a small number of the uh, percentage of the number of MPs, but it's enough to cause... A and often the poor quality of the 2019 intake. That's there were right, a lot yeah. of rubbish MPs who came <clears throat> in when Johnson was getting Brexit done. And those people are often, you know, the ones who are being nailed. Yeah. Rushed I, recruitment strategy would yeah. be absolutely no yeah. concern about. I'm just intrigued at what would significantly damage the reputation of the House as a whole or its members generally in 2023. <laughs> and what could you possibly do? <laughs> Maybe it's like on a gradient that every, yeah. every, every year we get to... Apart from literally summoning aliens higher. to conquer the earth, what could you do? Anyway, more seriously, all this stuff is taking place against the backdrop of preparations for a 2024 election, obviously, but it might take place even earlier than we thought. The vote has to happen by the 28th of January 2025 at the very latest, but the Labour leadership is telling shadow ministers they've got to have their manifesto contributions ready by the 8th of February. And that indicates they're expecting election in May, probably around May the 4th, which is when the local elections are. Roz, as the New Statesman's political correspondent Freddie Haywood reported last week, Labour's rationale is that Sunak would, wouldn't, he wouldn't have spent those billions on a national insurance cut that's going to come into effect in January if he was planning to go to the country in the autumn. That like this is a giveaway right on the eve of an election. Are you kind of, are you feeling a May election? Maybe. I mean, I don't, it's it's really hard. To, I don't think Sunak has made up his mind yet. I think that is is still open. I mean, there, there will be so many things going through their minds, when to call it. Will something good come along? If, what could, what's good that could come along for the Tories? It's really hard to know. Could it be, you know, some sort of, 
a hit to Keir Starmer personally. I mean, they've already been started digging up stuff about cases that he's defended in the past before he joined the Department of Public Prosecutions. And there was a very silly story today about him apparently defending a dog. um, Keir loves dogs. Great for Labour. What's the problem? (laughs) More of this. But, but, you know, obviously Keir has also defended some more um, dodgy people, including, you know, representatives of his book at uh, Toria. And that is more problematic. But on the other hand, you know, I think most people understand that a barrister... Uh, barristers have rules and yeah. it's sometimes honoured more in the breach than the observance but the general principle is that you you um, on the cab rank principle that you defend someone if they come along because people have got to have a defence in yeah. law you can't send someone into a court without their, without a lawyer I mean that's the mark of a totalitarian state so I think people do understand that and so I think he's fairly immune to that but something else good coming along it's hard to imagine what that would be another question is is what more does Rishi Sunak want to get done mm. before he leaves office? Is there something that he is yearning to do that he has not yet been able to do? And the answer to that is also difficult because it's very difficult to do anything when you don't have, have much money. Things and Facebook, that's what it is. <laughs> yes. I mean, maybe there are more things he wants to ban um, that we don't know about yet. That Chewing might... gum. Yeah, Loud that... music after 10 o'clock. I don't know. What else drives a mad Shay Sunak? You know, what are the girls up to that he really hates? It's been something like that. You know, I mean, there's there's talk uh, this week. Danny Kruger has been out and about from the New Conservatives. Miriam Cates' friend has mm. been out and about saying, oh, we must go, go into the next election. Uh, on a pledge to abolish the European, uh, uh, to pull out of the European Court of Human Rights, and so maybe you know that's that that that's the thing that's that he's going to die. That's say. the hill he wants to die on. Yeah. He certainly seems quite willing to die on the hill of Rwanda. So, but I I struggle to see, I struggle to see what they think is going to happen that's good between May and, let's say, October. Because November is really pushing in. Once we get into December and January, that is really, really far ahead. And it's difficult to, you know, you're, you're, you're absolutely pushing it and you can't get the elderly out to vote, which is but a real If you problem. hold an election in May or you hold an election at a push in September, you're mm. still in control. If you hold an election in December or January, it's clearly because you've totally lost control. You've lost your grip. Yeah, September is also difficult because you want to have a decent campaign and people are away during the, you know, you're going to ruin everybody's holiday. Yeah, Yeah. everybody's holiday is going to be ruined. You don't want to do that. It puts them in a bad mood. Yeah, so (laughs) early October. Yeah. Unfortunately, all the students are back then. They're all all bloody socialists, aren't they? Yes, but they're in university towns. And if they're going to if if they're going to vote, it's better that they vote in Labour strongholds where the Labour votes can pile up um, than in uh, more rural places where their votes might actually make the difference. Right. But they're at home with mum and dad. Hannah, one of the key factors next year is going to be mortgages. This is going to colour the Mm. whole year, the whole electoral year. An estimated 1.6 million fixed mortgages are going to expire in 2024. And it's going to put thousands of people onto a higher rate. And those are the people, the voters that the Conservatives yeah, need. absolutely. Surely that is a strong argument for Sunak going as early as he possibly can before all this properly happens. Yes, I think there are a few sort of individual personal finance reasons for him to think about going early. Mortgages is one of them. And as you said, it's all those people who are sitting there panicking, worried about the expiration of their fixed deal. There's also quite a lot of people now pent up demand for first time buyers, people who can't get a mortgage because the deals are so expensive. Um, 
So the longer uh, he allows that to go on, that's a bigger and bigger chunk of people who are increasingly frustrated with their administration. But we've also got fuel prices to rise again in January. And if he, if you kind of keep waiting on that, people are going to really feel the pain over a quarterly bill or, you know, right up until the summer. They'll really see that in their pockets. Um, and finally, council tax is going up again in April. Mm. So it makes sense to have a good... Uh, and people are going to be asking with that, what are we getting for this council tax? You know, councils are withdrawing services all the time. The area I live is just about to drop down to the fortnightly bin collection. That kind of really sort of tangible but how many stuff. bins? Just the one bin? Because It's be just the one bin that. that's dropping down to that. I don't yeah. want to get into that because I feel quite worried about what it. It is. <laughs> be worried. Bin. It's bad, especially in summer. We're it's in, very we're bad for people big, who big have children who are still using night nappies like mine. Anyway, that's a side point, but people are going to get frustrated that they feel like they're getting nothing for this increased council tax. If anything, services are being withdrawn because, you know, we know public finances are in a state. So the longer you allow these things to spiral, the worse situation for him. So I think it is actually a good argument for going early. So the best time to have an election is always last week. Because right. it's going to just get it's worse. It's only going to get worse. Yeah. Um, we should call this episode Things Can Only Get Worse. <laughs> um Getting Rwanda through the Commons over the past couple of weeks is an absolutely painful spectacle. And we had all the ghosts of the Brexit years, like Marc Francois and the ridiculous five families on show. The Gammon Beanos, as uh, James O'Brien called <laughs> them in that. our live show. We should, we've got to hang on to that one. But um, it's the polling indicates still that immigration is less and less salient. It's a lot less salient than it was in the heyday of the Brexit election that carried us lots of power. More in common, the think tank did polling that showed only 27% of people think the Rwanda policy would work, even if it were to, to get through. Why are they betting on a policy that needs the kind of the aid of their client press to even make it into an issue? Because mm. without a Daily Mail, Express and Telegraph front page three times a week, this just fades, doesn't it? I do think it's still sort of the main, I suppose, cultural issue they've got that they do have control over. You're right about the polling. Overall, it's slipping beyond all of the other issues that are rising up, NHS, cost of living and so on. But immigration is still quite a big blue wall issue. Actually, contrary to the New Statesman piece that we were just discussing, that that piece argues that Rwanda suggests they're going to go later in October yeah. to give it longer to work. Again, I say in air quotes. Yeah, define work. Yes. I, think, I think actually they're more likely to go early because of Rwanda, because if they leave it too long, that it can be denounced as a failure. Whereas arguably, mm. very tangentially, by May, there hasn't been enough time to put it through to make it a success. So you can't judge it in the same way as you could at the end of next year. So I think uh, I think it's a reason to go early too. Yeah, small, small boats don't really get underway until right. the summer as well. Yeah. So, you know, they, by May, they haven't really started coming across the channel in, in, in numbers. So uh, if you leave it longer, there's a chance that they will. Ross, both parties are lining up their strategists for the election. The Conservatives have Isaac Levito and Labour have Morgan McSweeney. What, what do we know about these guys? Yeah, they're both interesting in different ways and they both have very different approaches. So Isaac Levito is um, Australian. He's about 40. He's uh, known by some Tories as the Wizard of Oz. Because, that took some thinking about, didn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because uh, they believe he helped them win the 2019 election with um, oven-ready uh, Brexit and uh, get Brexit done and so on. Um, he also managed um, to uh, secure the uh, New Zealand election recently, um, an election victory there when the Labour Party was defeated, and there's a lot of admiration for that. 
He'd fired a particular firm uh, called Topham Gerin from New Zealand, which was responsible for a lot of the COVID messaging during the pandemic. If you remember, you know, stay at home, protect the NHS, stay li- save lives, and you know, pictures of people at home happily eating popcorn and stroking cats. That was that was <laughs> Topham Gerin. So he, but fundamentally, he's a protege of Linton Crosby as well, who's a kind of legendary mm. Tory strategist. And so he's more about really the advertising. Now, Labour's guy, Morgan McSweeney, he's Irish, he's in his mid-40s. He's much more about overall strategy and positioning. So he's the founder of an outfit called Labour Together, which was basically set up to try to learn lessons from Labour's multiple election defeats. Um, it got into trouble recently for not registering its donations on time, but it has a it has a powerful impact on Labour policy. It's like an in-house think tank almost. And he has been very much in charge of controlling candidate selections, making sure that Labour is getting people in who are reliable, who are not on the Corbynite left, controlling that. He was um, Keir Starmer's chief of staff after basically backing Keir Starmer and promoting him to be leader. And he's he's got he's also got a strange background in a way because he came into politics almost by accident. He got his job as a receptionist in Labour Party headquarters when he was a student about 20 years ago or so um, and gradually worked his way up. The Times says that Levido is keen to use the local and mayoral elections in London as a dry run for the general election, and that's in May. It wants to test out campaign strategies and messaging. Um, and that would suggest later in the year because, you know, you run them, you've got your dry run in May and then you mm. run your actual election in October. But the problem is, if it's a disaster, you can't then go back. <laughs> You're kind of stuck with October, aren't you? Yeah, and there is a risk that the mayoral election in particular is a disaster for the Tories because they've got a pretty weak candidate. As mm. we know, that's she underplaying might not be- it. Yeah, that's underplaying <laughs> it. <laughs> she, like she's, she's got her oyster card back yet. We still don't know. She might not be able to make it to the polling booth. <laughs> I think she has got her oyster card because somebody she claimed to be nicked, but somebody then said, "Oh, I, I just found it and handed it in." <laughs> yeah. Um, so it could, despite Sadiq Khan's problems with ULAS uh, and so on, it could well be that Labour do very well. And the other in the other local elections, I imagine they will also do well. So what you may have is a you know, narrative of failure that gets set up in May where they are looking at the absolute ruin of their results and then they've got to try and claw back and turn down around their reputation during the summer, which is a big ask. Another reason mm. why May might be preferable. So, you know, whatever else has happened over the past 12 months, a 15 to 20% Labour lead has kind of stayed solid pretty much all year. Sunak's personal ratings now after Rwanda are at their lowest ever do any of these plans matter? Are we just kind of, it's a question now, not if the Conservatives lose, but by how much and when? Or are we? Am I, have I just had a fantastic, terrible, I just made a terrible error and given a huge hostage to fate there? It is terrifying, isn't it? And I think, you know, everybody on the on the left is terrified of, mm. of, of, of calling it before the results are out. And that is a danger. That's, you know, that's what haunted them in 1990, uh, 1992 mm. and they've never forgotten it. I think it's important the strategy is important and the tone of the campaign is important and I worry that the Conservatives uh, social media strategy in particular is nasty and aggressive Um, there was that 
few weeks ago, there was that uh, they they took the image of the BBC presenter uh, yes. showing the finger, yeah. which of course turned out to be just a joke between her and the production team, and not actually her doing that at all. But they then you know, stuck a stuck a uh, line on it about you know what Labour says when you ask them what their sm- sm- migrant illegal migrant policy mm. is, and it was a nasty piece of work. But what I worry will happen in this election is that there will be extensive use of deep fakes and no one will be able to trace where they come from because they will be basically come from unknown sources, but they will go viral. And I worry that the Conservatives in particular won't distance themselves from them enough and mm. quickly enough um, and make it clear uh, fast enough that they uh, are are deep fakes, and so I think we'll see quite a lot of that going on. And I think it's important it's important to to, to look at what what's, what sets the tone for the campaign. Is it going to be really nasty and unpleasant and mudslinging and having a go at Keir Starmer, which I think would ultimately backfire? But mm. is that the tone that's gonna gonna happen? I agree with you, but I also think that the backlash to the Conservatives' choice of leaving that image up there of the middle finger being flung um, was actually quite significant, more significant than I would have expected it to be, including some MPs calling it out saying, I've complained about this, it's be- it's beneath us, I don't know why it still exists, this is not the party, that I- this is not how I want the party to be um, represented in the public sphere. So um, that creates embarrassment, further discord, so it could that kind of a strategy could actually backfire on them more than they than perhaps the twenty three year olds in the office planning the social media campaign understand. Um, and also, I saw a couple of posts that Labour were using on social media this week that actually made me feel quite buoyed up about their own strategy on social. There was one, um, particularly doing the rounds today, as we record, uh, on NHS waiting lists, which is a very simple graph showing how waiting lists shot up under the Conservatives in both previous administrations and and dropped in in the years between 97 and 2010. Uh, But there was some very careful wording on it. So it said, um, under the Tories, above the Tories section of the graph, and with Labour in the middle section of the graph. Now, Somebody just scanning that would read it and process that in their mind, but not really sort of look very carefully at the words. And that idea of that sense of being collegiate, being, you know, being in a partnership with the Labour Party that looks after you mm. compared to being under the failure of the Tories is very clever. And it made me think that there's that, you know, they've got the right people on that. Mm. It's very subtle um, stuff that does get lodged in your brain. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Next up, it is time to choose our Hero and Villain of the Week. Actually, it's the last one of the year. Hero and Villain, uh, where our panel choose a hero and a villain, make a case for them, and then I decide what the winner is. Hannah, who is your hero and who is your villain? My Hero of the Week is a woman called Dr Melanie Sloan, who works at the University of Cambridge. She has published a study, along with a group of her colleagues this week, into the 
perceptions of doctors around diagnosis. So it looked at what kind of tools doctors used to diagnose their patients and how useful they were. So everything from blood pressure and blah, blah, blah. But one thing it looked at was a patient's own reporting of their symptoms and how they felt about their illness. Um, and it found basically that doctors claim that this is the least useful tool in diagnosis is how people feel about themselves <laughs> and what they think is wrong with them. And this was particularly acute. Nobody will be surprised for women being diagnosed by male doctors. So this is great because I just think it really needs exploding. And with really long waiting lists, a lot of patients will have done a lot of research and will very often be right in their hunch about what's yeah. going on with them and their own bodies. And this study really forces doctors to confront their own assumptions. So well done, Dr. Melanie Sloan. Very needed piece of research. Okay, Dokken, who's your villain? My villain of the week is Rachel Johnson, who has written an op-ed <laughs> in the Evening Standard saying she's sick of dietary requirements and nobody should be expected to cater to their guests' dietary needs. Now, I say to Rachel Johnson, I'm sick of dietary requirements too. I would rather not have to explain to my three-year-old what an EpiPen is and how it works and why she needs to make sure she's got them in her little bag everywhere she goes. And she goes on in this piece about how the law protects people who've got allergies, so therefore the rest of us don't have to think about it. I can also assure her the law does not do that. It's insufficient. It's a daily nightmare living with people who genuinely have life-threatening allergies. And this kind of fucking bullshit <laughs> makes my life more difficult. Are so you actually saying here on this podcast <laughs> that a Johnson has come out with a load of shite I in am. public media? You might how, find it really hard to believe. You? How dare you come on this podcast? <laughs> Is she basically saying peanut allergies are woke? I mean, she doesn't go that far. And she does, there is a little section in it about how allergies should be taken seriously. But it's her kind of thinking. I, you know, my kids come across people who think like her all the time. Yeah. It's my fear that a teacher or somebody else's mum, that they come across, think like that and don't take the things I say to them seriously. Yeah, so it's just, it's just yeah. peddling that nonsense. That the, the stuff and is just chilly-shallying. Yeah. Mm. I, oh, I'm so angry about Two that. very strong cases there. Roz, you've got to beat that. Who, who's your hero and who's your villain? Uh, my hero is uh, any journalist who has been investigating Michelle Moan and then received <laughs> uh, a, a letter from her lawyers threatening uh, a libel action if they pursued it. Um, the Guardian did some particularly good work on this, David Conn, the investigations editor. It's just really important, given that how long the various inquiries and investigations and cases are taking, that this is done. And so well done to them. I'm just amazed that uh, we haven't seen the headline storm in a D cup anywhere, because this one is crying out for it. It's right there. But it's not a storm in a D cup, is it? Isn't. It's, it's much very bigger important. than that. It's a storm in like a GGHJKL <laughs> cup. I just, it's massive. Okay, I don't even know what that is, but um, that's because I'm an <laughs> ill-educated male okay it's good a very big bra cup Andrew. okay yeah good to know and who's your villain uh, my villain this week is alexander vucic who's the president of serbia uh, it's uh, they've had elections he's won them but there has been extensive election rigging and all kinds of ballot stuffing people being bussed in from uh, bosnia herzegovina to vote in the serbian elections all kinds of massive irregularities it is really sad to see for a country that aspires supposedly, to join the EU. Yeah, and that's, unfortunately, that's going to be one to watch for 2024 because it's only going to get worse around there. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think... I'm not going to make uh, Rachel Johnson um, the villain of the week because I don't want to give any Johnsons anything. Fair any enough. awards of I'll any kind. That. Yeah. So here of the week is Dr Sloan, entertaining Dr Sloan. And villain of the week is uh, Vidjik because we... Uh, is it, It's just yet more... The kind of stuff we thought we'd sort of started to push back against mm. yet more populist yeah. election messing about yeah. yeah 
Villain of the Week. Okay, sold. Finally, put down that wrapping paper. You're cutting it all wrong anyway. You may well be listening to this podcast while preparing for Christmas. In Parliament, Tuesday is the last day of business in the Commons until the 8th of January. Last Christmas, the first legal challenge to the Rwanda plan had just succeeded and NHS nurses were on strike. The one before that, the Omicron variant was running rampant and Partygate was just starting to rear its ugly blonde head. So we might look forward to Christmas as a break from politics, but is it really? And also, what do politics junkies like us do to get through the supposedly fallow seven to ten days between the end of hostilities and when they all start up again? Ros, I, I don't know about you, but I get uh, withdrawal symptoms over Christmas and I find myself just hitting refresh on the phone, desperate for something to happen, no matter how awful it might be. Um, do you have that itch? Uh, yeah, it's difficult. And I, I, I've got to stop it because there's nothing worse than kind of looking for stuff on Twitter. And no one is or hardly anybody is on Twitter. And those that are are just talking about the dullest stuff in the world. Just happy Christmas. Look yes. after your family. Shut up. Yeah, exactly. And it's just it, it's awful. I mean, the only solution is to put your phone in a different room and just say, right, I'm going to be completely off social media because it's it's uh, massively unsatisfying, even for those of us who, you know, who who'd struggle with it the rest of the year. Uh, um, there's nothing going on there. The papers uh, around this time are always full of um, how to have an argument-free Christmas. Yeah. Don't talk about politics. Don't talk about religion. Like, well, what are you supposed to talk about then? These are the most interesting topics that are available. Isn't isn't a really good politics row actually quite enlivening at Christmas? No. It's you sure about awful. that? It's awful, Andrew. It just is. It is. I uh, Believe me, I, I mean, it's the problem of not being able to exit either because... Personally, I don't drive, so there's no public transport at Christmas. Right. You can't get away. You're stuck with people who are quite drunk already, um, and you you can't you can't. I, I I do agree that there should be as little politics at Christmas as as possible. I mean, there there are people who find talking about politics anyway incredibly rude. It's like you know you're talking about bestiality, and I kind <laughs> of but but I sort of get their their point at Christmas. If Christmas is about anything, it is about you know, some kind of putting your differences aside for a short time. And the whole point about politics is often it isn't about putting your differences aside. I mean, it's great. I'm sure if you're if you're with um, if you're Christmas, you're with people who think exactly like you and you're all sharing around those those. Oh, God, what now mugs and Romaniacs merch. I wouldn't go um, that far. But I am quite lucky that my immediate family, not the wider family, but the immediate family that I tend to spend Christmas with, including my parents, we are basically on the same page yeah so i actually really quite enjoy a chance to sit down and talk politics with my dad because i don't really get the time the rest of the year yeah. to sit and have a proper detailed conversation you know um when he'll be there and i'll be there after kids are in bed he can sit and have a drink and just actually talk about what's going on um mm -hmm. and because as you say he's just as outraged with the current government as i am whereas obviously i've had to sit and talk to say my uncle who perhaps doesn't share that view. I'm not sure, actually. See, um, I, I don't want to talk about it to him, um, but he's not going to be there. So I, I kind of think that, you know, it, it, it absolutely is a time to spend quality time with the family. And sometimes that quality time can be a proper debate about yeah, something that you yeah. disagree with. Like my American in-laws, a large chunk of the family years ago were kind of soft Republicans. Right. And they were of a particular age and most of them have passed on now so I sort of kind of miss going over for Thanksgiving and having like hoping the right not, no just saying like, so what do you think about this and having a proper good conversation with um, and I actually miss the fact that you could have a proper good 
conversation with sensible Republicans because it seems like they've all disappeared now. There's none left. And luckily, there's nobody in the family who's a who's a bonkers Trumper. But I sort of feel a bit Swiss. You know, we're kind of living in really, really important times. And I'd like to be able to talk to these people who experienced, you know, Reaganism firsthand or maybe even experienced Nixonism firsthand. Mm-hmm. Just say, you know, what was it like? What was your experience? How does that relate to the way things are now? Here's what I think. Here's what my experience in Britain is. Tell me what you think about it. And I just feel like it's, uh, I mean, it's not because they don't want to talk about it. It's because they're not around anymore. If they were around. Well, there's that bit, as you yeah. hinted to, it's also a symptom of the descent of political discourse, yeah. which has infected how ordinary people talk about it. So I agree with you in that it's actually really hard to find sensible conservatives yeah. to talk to about, you know, basic policy matters now, because most people who aren't completely insane are now very much in the centre, coming towards the centre-left to stump because you yeah. can't argue for this madness. But it, that means there isn't that, that tension there where you're sort of discussing things, both sensible, both making clear arguments, but you know, yeah. without resorting to... You can maybe have a halfway house where you get particularly uh, elderly people to talk about politics past, mm. you know, because it's... Then you can you can talk about politics, but you can talk about how it affected them in what, you know, 1950s, yeah. 1960s, 1970s. And, you know, I think that's, that's a, you know, that's actually quite a good scene. And it's interesting for everyone. And you don't necessarily have to get onto the divisive stuff of the last the last yeah. few mm. years. And it's simultaneously interesting. You know, I mean, there are many things that I wish I could ask my parents about, which I can't ask them anymore. And for some reason, I didn't when mm. I was younger. And I'm sure I'll feel the same way with my in-laws when the time comes. Um, and it's it, it's a shame in a way to miss the opportunity to talk about this stuff because people you know fascinate i want to know what you know what they thought of the winter of discontent what was that what was that like what were they up to well i, I can totally... tell you Ross, that shows there myself because <laughs> i'm anxious <laughs> i totally agree with you and actually i'm glad you said that because you reminded me I, I actually said to my mother the other day and she agreed i want to find some time with you in the next sort of 10 years to sit and talk about my my mum worked for the foreign office in the 70s mm. and this was before she married because in a completely disgusting policy before in the early 70s you couldn't be a married woman on posting in the Foreign Office, so she had to quit her job to marry my father, at 25. But before that, she worked in some, um, in Moscow and in Bonn, and she's been, she'd lived abroad. Was your mum a spy? She <laughs> was a spy, the, wasn't she? This is the family joke. Is okay. My mum actually just a spy. She covers it quite well. <laughs> <laughs> yes, um, I had to but, resign my job. But she, uh, yeah, I want to know about that. I, I really want to hear about Moscow in the 70s and her work, and I know bits. She's talked a lot through my childhood about it, but you know, as an adult, there's never any time to just sit and talk about those really important things. And I, I definitely don't want to look back and think, why didn't I ask her when she was here to tell me? Yeah, and you will, trust me. Yeah, I know, yeah. So yeah. thank you for the prompt. <laughs> When's the last time we had to work over Christmas? When's the last time you had to be on a, uh, you know, on a desk or kind of like keeping an eye on things? You know, I don't think I've ever worked on really? Christmas Day. Yeah. No, I don't know. I, I think just nature of my jobs, um, or maybe people just don't trust me much. Because after, <laughs> after all, basically, if if you're if you're working Christmas Day, you're often quite junior, but you've got to be fairly responsible. Um, because you know you don't want to completely fuck everything up. Um, and, and given that I worked for a long time on the Guardian's website, it was important, you know, not to fuck the Guardian's website up on Christmas Day. Yeah. So maybe I just wasn't responsible enough to do that. It's well, actually, quite possible. That, it was very important because I was sitting there with my phone refreshing the Guardian website, desperate for something to happen. 
and depending on you, Roz, to make something exciting happen on my yeah. pre-iPhone WAP phone. Yeah. Oh, WAP, yeah. Yeah, I remember WAP. <laughs> Are we on any fun Christmas card lists? Has any, did anybody get no, the Tony Blair going to fight you in a, in a, in a uh, car park Christmas card? <laughs> No. no. <laughs> you think I'm far more connected than I am. I'm yeah. just deeply unconnected in those ways. This is just an opportunity to me to say that I, get, I always get the Pet Shop Boys Christmas card. Do you? Yeah, I do, yeah. That's it pretty cool. Tell us, tell us what it is this year. Have you received it yet? This, this year it is the uh, the two faces from the front of their album Relentless, which is kind of pixelated and made to look video gamey, but it's got Christmas hats on it because it's a Christmas card. Oh, Great stuff. That's cool. I know it's Christmas when that's turned off. Yeah. Your favourite history nerds are back. Yes, we at We Are History have been trawling the history shelves of our local bookshops. Well, I have, John. You mostly went round finding your books and moving them to the front of the displays. If I can find them, it's a bonus. We are ready to tell you all about what we've learned, from the revolting French to some revolting women. Via some Brits abroad and a foul-mouthed Irishman. So, download We Are History. Our laughable attempt at a silly history podcast. With me, John O'Farrell. And me, Angela Barnes. Wherever you get your podcasts. We've very clearly reached the end of the show, so it's time for escape routes, the things that we are using to take our minds off the dwindling horror of politics as we get towards Christmas. Hannah, what's your escape route? Glad you asked, because I haven't stopped talking about this to everyone I've met for the last five days. I yes. went to see Suede on Friday night at Brixton. It was a small gig because obviously the academy shut, so they had to do three small gigs at uh, what used to be called Fridge, and I can't remember what it's called. It's called the Electric now. The Electric. Um, it was so good. Now, I never saw them in the 90s, and I'm not quite sure why that is, but I think I've been interrogating it. Why did I never bother? I think I did quite like them, but I wasn't obsessed with them like I was with other bands. And I think at that point, the kind of raw sexuality of what yes. they are was a bit much for my sort of 13, 14-year-old, <laughs> you know, Damon Albarn bopping about the stage. is yeah. a much more palatable thing. Yes, and but filthy sexless and Brett Anderson. It was probably a bit much. Yeah. Anyway, I went to see them. A friend of mine, I didn't buy the ticket. A friend of mine uh, worked with someone who goes out with one of them. So I uh, <laughs> managed to get in. I would probably wouldn't have bought a ticket. I went along and it blew me away. It, they were unbelievably good. His voice is astonishing. I had no idea he had such a great live voice. And I mean... Looks amazing, doesn't he? Control yourself. Well, it I also yeah. I went wonderful. to wonderful. It was so good. I went to the same show and it was fantastic. And also their new stuff, which I've not been following because I just didn't think they'd done yeah. anything good since 1997. It's so wrong. Unbelievably great, and I've been listening to Auto Fiction on repeat since yeah. I saw them. I'm, no. I'm obsessed again. Yes, I'm quite actually right I didn't realise they were gigging again because you and I, we went to a, to a suede gig. How yes. long ago was it? That About was in November no. 2021 at Ali Pali. Yeah. 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 And that was great. Yeah. I mean, it was amazing. Yes. This well, is... now I'm like Ali Pali and with the Mannix next year. It's in my diary already. I'm not going to miss that. And you've subliminally started dressing in black as well. Yeah, you know, it's just, gonna... you know, sort of yeah. back to it. How does he do it? Like, what is he, 56? He looks like about 30. He is. There's going to be that time, isn't it, when he's just going to not quite be able to pull it off anymore. And, oh, and, I, and I'm dreading that day. I'm dreading it. Because uh, when uh, Brett Anderson stops being sexy, then I'm going to be old. No, I think he's going to end up like Bill Nye, looking absolutely fantastic, well into his 70s and probably beyond. I once DJed at a wedding and Bill Nye asked me, have you got any disco? I said, I have, Amazing. Bill. I've played a load of disco. 
Anyway, Ros, beat that. What's your uh, escape route? Oh, it's so seasonal and trad and boring compared with that, I'm afraid. Because I would have loved to have been at this gig, but I just didn't even know it was happening. Um, no, I went to see the Messiah at the Barbican last last ah. uh, last week, and that was very nice. Um, it was a very good performance, and actually it's on Radio 3 on Tuesday at 7.30 tomorrow. Uh, that's, that's Tuesday at 7.30, if you want to hear it yourself, because it's a lovely piece of music. And the last time I heard it live was 15 years ago when I was pregnant with my first child and my mum was with me and that was the last Christmas for her and oh. so it was very poignant. Well I'm doing music as well uh, because a couple of weekends ago uh, I made, I went on a pilgrimage to Cologne with my, my wife um, for our silver wedding and we went to a record shop called Compact with a K which is uh, they, they are renowned for making fantastic techno uh, on their own label and um, chap behind the counter gave us loads of guidance on what records to buy and he, uh, he suggested that we buy this compilation called where the Rabbit Sleeps by a band called Sensorama, who are a German techno band from the late 80s, early 90s. And it is the most amazing wrap you up in a warm blanket um, type electronic music. Super kind of, um, you know, if, if you if you like your, your German compact techno, this is really, really, you know, kind of extremely sensual version of it. I'll put a link in the show notes um, so that listeners can have a listen because there's no way you're going to be able to traipse around and buy this thing but i've just been playing the living death out of it it's one of those things that um feels really christmasy even though it's not christmasy so uh, where the rabbit sleeps by sensorama um, follow the link in the show notes and that's the end of the tuesday edition of oh god what now thank you hannah it's your last one of the year happy it christmas is. thank you and happy christmas to everyone listening and it's your uh Ogwen finale of the year as well happy christmas ross thank you for happy everything. christmas listeners We'll be back on Thursday for Patreons and Friday for everybody else with our last show of the year. So we'll see you then. Thanks for listening. See you at the end of the week. Oh God, What Now? is presented by Podmasters Group Editor, Andrew Harrison, with Hannah Fern and Roz Taylor. The managing editor was Jacob Jarvis, and the producer was me, Alex Reese. Socials by Jess Harpin and Mike Bollin. Art direction by James Parrott and Mark Taylor. Oh God, What Now? is a Podmasters production. Thank you.